Thank you, Shelly. That was beautiful. And Chris, you did a good job, too, on the piano. Uh, I need to return for a moment to that pastoral comment. I forgot to mention that uh, Ryan and Caitlin are actually leaving this week, Wednesday, I believe. Uh, Taylor, Chase, Hannah, later this month. If you don't already know where they're going and why they're going, avail yourself of the fellowship lunch to make contact with them and ask them why they're going. Try to convince them to stay. I think it's vain, but you can try. And, uh, and also uh, take note that when you go through the doors into the Williams Hall, on the right, you'll see a table. And there's a beautiful cake on there, and a number of hands have gone into preparing that. And also a plaque with our, with our prayer for them. And so I encourage you five to get a good look at that, and the rest of us also, as we honor And we thank them for their contribution to us. Turn with me to what we just heard. Uh, The book of Psalms, 120. And I encourage you to turn also in the church bulletin. You'll find sermon notes in there, in the bulletin, on the inside cover to help you follow our study of this psalm. You will also find in the bulletin an insert It looks like this, at the top, a title, Psalms of Ascent, Ascent, Going Up. Uh, These begin in Psalm 120, they end in Psalm 134, 15 Psalms. Why are they called the Psalms of Ascent? We don't know for certain. I think the best idea, the best plausible reason why these are categorized as the Psalms of Ascent is because the people of Israel sang them traditionally as they went up to Jerusalem on one of those three annual religious feasts when they were required to gather at the city. And so they ascended. They would go up to Jerusalem three times a year. And as they ascended, as they made that journey, they would sing these psalms. I want you, I encourage you to keep this and to use it over the next four months or so as we go through these psalms for three reasons. The first reason is summed up in those few words from the pen of John Calvin, a mirror of the soul. That's what we have in the Psalms of Ascent. As a matter of fact, that's what we have in the entire book of Psalms, a mirror into the soul. In the Psalms, and and in particular these 15 Psalms, Doctrine and experience meet. Uh, Doctrine, theology, and emotion meet. And we're going to see that. It's going to become clear. So I encourage you to keep that little phrase in mind that in the Psalms, what we have is a mirror of the soul. Second reason why I'm going to encourage you to keep this and, and make constant reference to it is what I've listed after that quote from John Calvin. We interpret them, that is the Psalms of Ascent, in the light of the cross. And so here we have our goals, our aim in this series of studies, to interpret these psalms in the light of the cross. They are messianic in their overall message. We use them. Here's how we need to use them to understand our experiences. We use them to regulate our feelings. We use them to change our perspectives. We adopt them as our prayers. Struggling in your prayer life? Get back to the book of Psalms and use these Psalms because, again, here we have the complete, a, a, a complete survey of human experience, human emotion, as the soul pours itself out to God. 
And then the last objective, we follow them as we ascend through these psalms. We follow them, they culminate, they have their end in God and a closer walk with him. And then the third thing I've given you there on that little handout is a general overview. There we have it, Psalm 120, seeking peace. 121, needing help, so forth and so on. All the way through to Psalm 134, arriving home. So here you have the next 15 Sundays. You can read these psalms in preparation. You can meditate upon them. You can use them in your daily prayers. You can memorize the verses we're going to extract from these different psalms corporately over the next few months. And I pray, I sincerely and earnestly pray that the Lord will bless this study to us. And so we begin today in Psalm 120. Shelley sang it for us. Uh, Beautiful, singing the psalms. I, I was struck by this recently. It had been a long time, a really long time, since I had been in a service uh, strictly devoted, a worship service strictly devoted to the Psalms. But when I was in Brazil, uh, preaching at those conferences last month, uh, during the first conference, on the, I preached a Sunday morning, Sunday evening at a church. In the afternoon, there were a number of people, this big family, uh, which had gathered for this conference. They wanted to have a worship service, and they invited me to preach at it. I preached and they worshipped, they sang a cappella, and they only sang the psalms. And then at the second conference in Maragogi, they, uh, they just decided they were only going to sing from the psalms. And so at the start of each of the 12 sessions, preaching sessions, they would sing two or three of these psalms. All of them have been set to music. I think there are a couple extremes we need to avoid. The one extreme is that segment of the church which says, well, this is the Bible's hymn book, and this is all we should sing and nothing else. We want to avoid that extreme, and I dare say most of us in the church do avoid that extreme today. But the other extreme we want to avoid, which perhaps we haven't paid as much attention to, is this, um, the fact that the Psalms are rarely sung in the church. Uh, The Psalms are indeed the church's hymn book, hymnal. And in the Psalms, again, we have the entire spectrum survey of human experience. They are rich with theology, and they are intended to be sung. And I think it is to our spiritual impoverishment that we have got away from that habit. We've got away from that custom. And so that's why we had Shelley sing it this morning. Uh, On subsequent Sundays, some of them we're going to sing collectively uh, where it's suitable. Some of them, again, solo. Some of them perhaps we'll just read and declare publicly. But I encourage you to, to get into these psalms and to make them your own and to incorporate them into your daily walk, your daily devotion and to use the language and the concepts and the truths and the cries and the longings and the yearnings as your prayers. Make them your own. And I do not doubt that the Lord will richly, richly bless you. And so we begin this day with Psalm 120. Hear it again as I read it publicly for us. In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. In the very first verse, 
the psalmist simply summarizes his experience. That's all he does. He gives us a wonderful, short, curt, succinct summary of his experience. Notice three things. He is in distress. In my distress. That term distress actually refers to a closed, confined space. It refers to a trap. If you've ever taken a cage and used it to trap a possum or a skunk or a raccoon, and you set it out there at night and you come in the morning, and there it is, enclosed in that cage, a closed, confined space, trapped. That animal can't flee, nor can it fight. That's how the psalmist feels at this moment. He is in distress. He can neither flee nor fight. He is trapped. Second thing he says as he summarizes his experience is this. He calls to the Lord. In other words, he understands that his situation, his predicament is is helpless. He cannot do anything to remedy it. He understands that the only remedy for his distress is the Lord. And so he pours out his heart in prayer. Third thing I want you to notice is this, right at the end of verse 1. The Lord answers him. The Lord does not forsake him. The Lord does not forget him. The Lord does not abandon him. The Lord hears and the Lord answers. That's it. He summarizes his experience. As I read that, I'm left with the question, well, give me some details. What exactly is going on here? What was the predicament in which he found himself, this distress And so beginning in verse 2 through to the end, verse 7, he simply unpacks it all. He has given that general overview summary of his experience in verse 1. He's in distress. He calls to the Lord. The Lord answers him. And then he fills in the details concerning those three in the remaining verses. And so look firstly at the psalmist's distress, the details. Verse 2, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips. From a deceitful tongue. There's the cause. It's a parallel statement. It says it's two ways of saying the same thing. The cause of his distress, lying lips. The cause of his distress, a deceitful tongue. In other words, the psalmist is the object of a smear campaign. The, The psalmist is the object of a concerted effort Uh, of character assassination. Uh, People are spreading lies about him. People are maligning him. They are misrepresenting him. The rumors and the innuendos, they are flying, they are circulating. And there's nothing he can do about it. He's, He's in distress. He feels like a trapped, caged animal. There is no public forum in which, by which he can defend himself and set the record straight. Have you ever been slandered in secret? I've been there. One of, the most power, one of the most painful experiences in my life in terms of pastoral ministry. Have you ever been slandered in secret? Have people, someone ever spread lies, simply untruths about you? Have people secretly misrepresented, put a skewed slant emphasis on everything you've said, everything you've done? Have you ever felt trapped as if you were in a prison cell, 
unable to defend yourself, unable to flee, unable to fight, in distress because of these attacks in secret. Have you ever been ridiculed in public? Ridiculed in public. Dare I say, dare I ask, has anyone ever said to you, you are useless? You're stupid. Um, You're worthless. You're ugly. What did our mothers teach us? Uh, Sticks and stones may break our bones. My mother taught me this one anyway. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but names will never hurt us. Uh, In all due respect to our mothers, they were wrong. They were dead wrong. Words do far more damage than sticks. Uh, Words maim the soul for life. Words become a prison cell and the cause of awful distress. James tells us, I'm referring to the book of James, chapter 3. James tells us that the tongue is powerful. We direct a horse with a small bit, and we direct a ship with a small rudder. These tiny things guide and control and influence enormous objects, wielding influence out of all proportion to their size. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James also tells us that the tongue is dangerous. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire times the cause of forest fires. We've seen them brush fires around here. Oftentimes, many times, the cause of those fires is something seemingly insignificant. A mere spark quickly gives rise to a blaze which rages for days, weeks, even months. The tongue is a spark which sets on fire the entire course of life. It wreaks havoc and creates chaos. It harasses, belittles, demolishes It takes no prisoners, and it does not spare the innocent. And James tells us, thirdly, that the tongue is uncontrollable. We are able to tame wild animals. I've seen them, dolphins, bears, elephants. Yet we are unable to tame the tongue. Why? James gives us two very specific reasons. Number one, the tongue is a restless evil. Animals are contained in cages, but nothing can contain The tongue. Number two, the tongue is full of deadly poison. Like a snake, the tongue is venomous. There you have the psalmist's distress, its cause. He feels like a trapped animal. Why? Words, lying lips, a deceitful tongue. The psalmist is trapped by this blaze, this fire, Set this, this, this blaze set on fire by hell itself. And in that distress, what does he do? This brings us to the second point. He cries out, he calls out to the Lord. And here we have the psalmist's prayer. It's right there in verse 2. First couple of words. Deliver me. And notice to whom these words are directed. Oh, Lord. His wife can't help him. His pastor can't help him. His friends can't help him. The psalmist recognizes that God is the only one who can help him. God who knows all things. The Lord who sees all things, sustains all things, 
appoints all things, orchestrates all things, governs all things. All things flow from Him and to Him, meaning He is the cause of all things, and He is the ultimate end in which all things culminate. Meaning what? There are no random events. There are no freak accidents. There are no chance encounters. There are no rogue molecules. The Lord's power is perfect. The Lord's knowledge is perfect. The Lord's wisdom is perfect. He is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The Lord is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The psalmist understands this. Deliver me, O Lord. He does not turn anywhere else. See, prayer is simply the cry. When we we just tear away all of the exterior, prayer is simply the cry of the man or woman who knows this to be true. God sits in the heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. That's all prayer is. Prayer is simply the cry of the heart which acknowledges that undeniable truth and reality. That the Lord, God, sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. And so the psalmist calls out to God for deliverance. He is confident in the words of Psalm 34, verse 7, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. And so we have His distress in verse 2. We have His prayer, verse 2. And then He fills in the details concerning that third point, the Lord's answer. And he fills in the details beginning in verse 3 through to verse 7. Let me read these verses again for us. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It is the psalmist who is still speaking, and yet in the psalmist's words, we discover, if we look closely and if we listen closely, we discover the Lord's answer to his prayer. And the first thing we must notice, the first thing that we need to observe is this, that there is no storybook ending to this psalm. I want you to notice this, Christian, and and, and I pray you will grasp it and really take it to heart. Let me repeat it. There is no storybook ending to this psalm. Let Let me state it in slightly different terms. The psalmist's condition, the psalmist's circumstances at the end of the psalm are exactly the same as at the start of the psalm. Oh, how we need to grasp this. And how we need to emphasize this because it is so counterintuitive. It is so contrary against the tide, against the flow of so much of what we hear today within evangelicalism. Uh, At the end of this psalm, uh, everything doesn't work out for the psalmist. You know, we, we might think to ourselves, according to the common evangelical mindset, well, the psalmist is a nice guy. Now God puts everything back together for him. And there's reconciliation with these evil men. 
And by the end of the psalm, I know what's coming. They're all going to be standing around the campfire, holding hands, singing Kumbaya. That's not what happens. There is no storybook ending here. Um, Let me give you an example, and I'll tread softly. I can tread softly at times. I'm going to tread softly here. Let me give you an example of this and how this message is subtle. False message is subtle and yet so real. The prevailing mindset today among Christians, among evangelicals. The example is this. That movie a few few years ago called Facing the Giants. I'm sure most of us saw that. Uh, Facing the Giants. A Christian evangelical movie in which there was this man, a football coach, not a believer, his wife not a believer, struggling with infertility. And his life falling apart at the seams, everything going wrong. In the course of the movie, he has a conversion experience. I'm not minimizing that. I'm not downplaying that. But after the conversion experience, what happens? His wife conceives. He gets a shiny brand new truck. And his football team wins the state championship. That's the message of evangelicalism today. A storybook ending. Come to Jesus and he'll make it all better. Come to Jesus and we'll all work out. Come to Jesus and you'll have a happy life. The scripture is completely antithetical. Many times in the Christian life on earth, there is no storybook ending. And this is the psalmist's experience. This is the reality of Christian experience. Notice and get this phrase and you unpack it on your own this afternoon. God does not change the psalmist's circumstances. God changes the psalmist's perspective. That is it, in a nutshell. God does not change the psalmist's circumstances. God changes the psalmist's perspective. It's noticed, firstly, in the fact that he expects justice. Verses 3 and 4, what shall be given to you? And so he's speaking of those who are afflicting him, the cause of his distress. What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? He's acknowledging that justice is coming, a day of reckoning is coming, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Broom tree, I think it's a juniper tree. Why does he make reference to a broom tree? It was a type of wood that would burn much longer than any other type of wood. And so the idea was that this wood would be fastened to these sharp arrows and launched and burned. And his enemy's words were just like this, and they would pierce the soul. But he has this confidence. He expects justice. He knows justice will come someday. He knows there is a day of reckoning. He knows there is a day when God, not him, God will set all things right. God will renew all things. That is his confidence. It leads him secondly to do what? To pursue peace. Verses 5 through 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech. It's a place in Asia Minor, up near the Black Sea, extreme north, as far as Israelites are concerned that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now we've gone to the extreme south, Arabia. There's a parallel here, parallelism, going all the way back to verse 2. Lying lips, deceitful tongue. Now he speaks of sojourning in Meshech, dwelling in Kedar. How could he be in these two places at the same time simultaneously? He can't. He's speaking figuratively. What does he mean? My experience is like living among the godless nations. My experience is like living among those who hate the Lord. My experience is like living among those who are completely irreligious. I don't live there. I live in Israel. But I live even in Israel among those who hate peace. 
And every time I speak, they are for war. But here is my attitude. Here is what I pursue in the midst of that animosity and hostility. I pursue it because I am convinced of future justice, that all things rest in God's hands. I pursue peace. The start of verse 7. I am for peace. There's no cry here for personal vengeance. He isn't about to take things in his own hands. He does not reason to himself, look, I'm going to give as good as I got. I'm going to give exactly what I have received. I'm I'm justified here. I know I'm in the right, and I am going to lash out. No. He trusts in coming justice and trusts the matter to the Lord. And in the present, he pursues peace. Uh, More often than not, dare I say 99% of the time, we respond sinfully to being sinned against. Yes, we do. We respond sinfully to being sinned against. Um, We like to tuck things away in our memory store banks and bring them out when appropriate, when necessary, and feel perfectly justified in doing so. We're a little bit like that character in Merchant of Venice. What was his name? Shylock. I think that's how you say it. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. That uh, Antonio, a Venetian businessman, comes to Shylock to ask for a loan for a commercial enterprise. The problem is this. These two men have a history. And on numerous occasions, Antonio has insulted Shylock, and Shylock is keeping a secret record. And he is growing in bitterness, growing in animosity, plotting the day of his revenge. He agrees to give Antonio the money he wants for his commercial enterprise. He gives it to him interest-free. But he makes one provision. It's this. If Antonio reneges on the loan, he owes Shylock a pound of his flesh. That's where that expression comes from. We want a pound of flesh. It comes from Shakespeare's, the merchant of Venice. Sure enough, Antonio goes off on that commercial enterprise. His ships are lost at sea. He's destitute. He owes this money to Shylock. He cannot repay it. And even a friend steps in and says to Shylock, as as they stand before the judge, I will give you twice what Antonio owes you. And Shylock will not hear of it. Why? He wants his pound of flesh. I will have vengeance. I will take matters into my own hands. I have been waiting and plotting for this moment. He has demeaned me. He has misspoken. He has misrepresented me. He has maligned me. He has hurt me. And now the moment has come. The opportunity has arrived. And I will have revenge. When someone wrongs us, our first impulse is to keep a mental record. My spouse did something insensitive. And so I'm going to employ the silent treatment. Or I'm going to withhold affection. I need to send a clear message. And so this is the means I'm going to use to make sure they understand. There's a word for that. It's called revenge. My boss was harsh when he corrected me. I'm going to make sure everyone knows what a loser he is. He needs to learn humility. And I'm going to be the God-appointed means to make sure it happens. That is called revenge. My son disobeyed me in front of guests. I'm going to make sure I punish him so that he never embarrasses me like that again. After all, that's my duty, isn't it? No, that is 
revenge. My sibling wronged me when I was 15 years old. I'm going to bring it up over Thanksgiving dinner 25 years later. I will do so in a light-hearted manner, but I'm going to do so. That is revenge. That is not the psalmist's attitude. In the psalmist, we see Romans chapter 12. No need to turn there. I'm just going to quote it. Romans chapter 12, verses 17, 18, and 19 in action. Repay no one evil for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the psalmist, he does not repay evil for evil. He does not seek revenge, does not take revenge upon himself. The psalmist seeks to live peaceably with all, meaning he is willing to forgive. The psalmist leaves the situation to the wrath of God. He knows justice is coming. The psalmist's attitude in the midst of that condition is the Lord's answer to his prayer. Hear these words, please. God does not change the psalmist's circumstances. He changes the psalmist's perspective. Let me state it in slightly different terms. God does not deliver the psalmist from his circumstances. He delivers the psalmist from himself. I'm going to repeat those two sentences because they are the crux of the psalm. They are the main intent and lesson of the psalm. God does not change the psalmist's circumstances. He changes the psalmist's perspective. God does not deliver the psalmist from his circumstances. He delivers him from himself. Now, there's a brief survey of the psalm. We have it in verse 1 where he summarizes his experience under those three headings, his distress, his call, his prayer to the Lord, the Lord's answer. And then verses 2 through 7, he fills in all the nitty-gritty details. Having surveyed this psalm, I pray, I trust, I hope you're convinced of four realities. Number one is this, the first reality. The tongue abounds in wickedness. The tongue is the best indicator of what is in the heart. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue is the infallible test of true religion. James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The tongue is the difference between heaven and hell. The words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 12, 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friend, is your speech full of malice? Is your throat an open grave? Are your words slowly beating someone down? sapping them of life? Do victims already lay in the wake of your verbal barrages? Are your words like a seasoned boxer's combination of jabs, hooks, crosses, and uppercuts? Oh, repent, friend. We will give an account for every, every careless word. 
The tongue reveals the heart in no uncertain terms. The tongue reveals the darkness and the depravity of the heart. And friend, I beg of you, repent. and Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And beg forgiveness of God through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and turn to the only one, Jesus Christ himself, who can curb and control our tongue. Second reality is this. True piety, that is godliness, is resting in God's goodness. John Murray states the following. The essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. It is faith, the essence of piety, to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care on Him, and to vest all our interests in Him. In times of distress, and we need to hear this and remind ourselves of it constantly, in times of distress, we do not comfort God's people by telling them everything will work out. In times of distress, affliction, tribulation, trial, heaviness, darkness, we do not comfort God's people by telling them everything will work out, everything will be okay, because many times things don't work out. We comfort God's people by telling them that He is in control. We comfort God's people by telling them that despite changing circumstances, God's love for His children does not change. We comfort God's people by reminding them that God's love is the most valuable thing in life. And we trust Him. Although we cannot see farther than the edge of our noses, although we cannot make sense of the mess and the chaos and all that is transpiring around us, although we cry from the pits of despair, yes, deliver me, We have this hope, we have this unshakable confidence, we have this unassailable assurance that our God reigns, that our God is good, and we trust Him. That is the essence of piety. The third reality is this. Perspective is a healthy remedy for discouragement and disillusionment. That's what God gives the psalmist. He gives him perspective. Deliverance. God may or may not deliver us from trials in the present, But we have this assurance, this confidence that deliverance most certainly comes fully and finally in glory. Paul Martin, a friend of mine, said this some time ago, the Christian life always ends well, but it does not always go well. I think I'll repeat that one. The Christian life always ends well. That's glory. But it does not always go well. God's purpose is not to change our circumstances and relationships to make us happy. God's purpose is to use our circumstances and relationships to make us holy. That is perspective. And that perspective is a healthy remedy for discouragement and disillusionment. Fourth reality is this. The cross is the answer for everything. The cross is the answer for everything. This psalm actually points us to the Lord Jesus. How? The Lord Jesus could have spoken these words. In my distress, I call to the Lord, and he answered me. If anyone ever felt like a caged animal, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone was ever victimized by the enmity of others, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the, the, the character assassination, the campaign against him to malign him publicly, privately, to misrepresent him, to lie about him. What does Peter say concerning it all? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus is the answer for everything. The cross is the answer for everything. The substitutionary death, atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners who, believe, who deserve God's judgment is the answer for everything. The cross, for starters, it enables us to escape the prison cell of words. It enables us to escape the prison cell of words. Many here have been the victims of words. Many of us here have grown up hearing words which have become your lifelong prison cell in which you feel like a trapped animal. The cross is the answer for this. The cross enables us to escape the prison cell of words. How? Because we are reminded as Christians that we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And as a result of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, God justifies us in his sight and God adopts us into his family. Do you know what that makes us, Christians? It makes us God's beloved. Why? Because we are one with his beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not allow the careless and the hurtful and the spiteful words of others to define us. We are defined by what God our Father says about us. We are defined by this great reality that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now stand in God's sight as His beloved. The cross, secondly, it enables us to offer forgiveness to those who hate peace. How? When we contemplate the cross, we are crushed to the ground. We're overwhelmed by the weight of our sin. We're overwhelmed by the magnitude of God's love. Overwhelmed, crushed to the ground by the depth of his mercy, the height of his grace. This cultivates what? Humility. And mercy experienced is mercy bestowed. Crushing us to the ground, the cross enables us to offer forgiveness, to seek peace in the midst of those who hate peace. And thirdly and finally, the cross enables us to persevere in the land of Meshech and Kedar. That's right now, friends. The cross enables us to persevere, endure in the land of Meshech and Kedar. We are surrounded by those who hate peace. But here's our hope and reality. The Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in glory. According to John's vision in Revelation 1, his hair is like white snow. His face is like the sun shining in full strength. He walks in the midst of his lampstands, his people, his church, his bride. He calls to us, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And here is our hope and certainty, the hope upon which we're fixed. A new day is coming. 
The old creation will give way to the new fully and finally. Therefore, whatever injustices and indignities we suffer now, we know that Jesus Christ will right all wrongs. We know that Jesus Christ will have the final word. And that enables us, in the words of the psalmist, to pray, In my distress I called to the Lord. And he answered me. Our Father, we pray your blessing, your richest blessing upon your word as has gone forth this day. We pray that you would, by your spirit, drive your word home, granting understanding in the mind, uh, granting love and affection in the heart, and granting observance in the will and every facet of life. We praise you, our God. We praise you for your patience toward us. We praise you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your loving kindness. And as we turn our attention now to this wonderful feast before us, this remembrance of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would bless us from on high, that you would point us again to Calvary's cross, that we would see its significance, that we would feel the full weight of its significance. And we ask this for the glory of and in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.